Now, in this case, I'm talking about a simple secret, which led to $5.9 billion in revenue. Well, again, no marketer that I'm aware of can make any claim anywhere close to that. And can I personally mentor you for the next year and teach you how to use the same secret to make yourself very wealthy? So, of course, my readers and people on my list are looking to increase their wealth, increase their revenue, and make more money. And that headline psychologically ties into that self-interest of becoming richer, wealthier. Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called Free Secrets from a Man Who Sold More Than $6 Billion in Products and Services Using Direct Response Methods. Ted Nicholas has sold more than $6 billion in products and services. That's more than any other guru around. He's owned 23 businesses, made millions in direct mail, knows the ins and outs of negotiating, and has written and tested copy for more than 30 years. Imagine how easy marketing would be if you could consult an expert like this for all your business dealings, someone who's already made the mistakes you're about to make and can tell you a better approach, a winning approach. It could save you thousands and make you millions. Ted Nicholas is doing just that, and in this interview, you'll hear some of his tried-and-true methods that have earned him guru status. According to Ted, most copywriters think it's important to cater to as many prospects as possible. But if you cast your net too wide, you'll neglect your niche-specific customer and essentially shoot yourself in the foot. And in this interview, you'll hear how to make sure your marketing is narrow, targeted, and as effective as possible. You'll also learn the most costly mistakes Ted has ever made and how to easily avoid making something similar. You'll learn how Ted grows his mailing list and keeps it hot. Tips for renting lists and ways to prevent yourself from getting ripped off. You'll learn how the Internet has affected the direct mail business and what you need to know to make it. You'll learn how Ted consistently gets 80% off his magazine advertising. You'll also analyze one of Ted's sales letters from the font color to the headline, the length, Everything is calculated. You'll learn why Ted says you should never promote anything you're not passionate about in the one lesson he learned straight from Napoleon Hill. You'll learn whether or not testimonials are as strong as they used to be and how to use them to evoke the kind of emotion you want. You'll learn how to use scarcity tactic to effectively call people to action and much, much more. Ted says he's an entrepreneur first. He started out with zero, knows what it's like to be on the other side of the desk, and knows how to get people into the mindset to succeed. So if you've ever dreamed of having a guru in your pocket to consult whenever you need to, this audio interview is for you. Now let's get going. For more information from Ted Nicholas, go to www.tednicholasmentoring.com. That's www.tednicholasmentoring.com. Hello, Michael. Good evening to you, Ted. How are you? I couldn't be better. How about you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. It's 9.30 in the morning here. I'm in San Diego, and I know it's 6.30 your time. It is that. Great to be talking to you live. I've listened to you for hours. I'm a real fan, and you've been a mentor of mine, even though you don't know it, for a long time. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. We'll try to give all of your listeners good information to use right away, so I'm looking forward to the interview. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be able to deliver. First question I wanted to ask you, Ted, is can the little guy still make it in the direct mail in the Internet business? I mean, is there room for the guy who's never done direct mail or never done Internet marketing? Can he still make it? Because I think a lot of people, one of their biggest obstacles is that confidence level, and they don't believe that they can really do it. What would you say to a guy? Well, there's no question about that. I get asked that question in various forms all the time. Well, no, the little guy today, in my view, has a better chance of making it than at any other time, particularly with the advent of the Internet, because you can basically do a lot of stuff for little or no money, whereas when I started my direct marketing empire in 73 with a $90 ad, the obstacles were greater because it cost so much money to test ads and direct mail and so forth. Whereas on the Internet, you can do it, as you know, with little or no money. So I like the chances of a little guy today much better than I did when I began. With one caveat, the little guy has to have a level of knowledge about marketing and copywriting before he or she has a chance to succeed. So in that context, if a little guy knows what he or she's doing, their chance of success is much greater, in my view, than it ever was. Let me ask you, there's a lot of mentors out there, a lot of marketing guys, a lot of gurus. Why should my listeners really be listening to you over a lot of these other guys? Well, a lot of the guys, maybe most of the guys, have never really operated a business. See, the difference between me and other mentors is that I'm an entrepreneur first and a copywriter and mentor second in the sense that, you know, I started in 23 companies, actually, started and sold the companies before I became a guru. So I'm really one of the listeners. In other words, I'm closer to being one of your listeners who's an aspiring entrepreneur than most of the mentors because a lot of the mentors are not really businessmen. They're not entrepreneurs. They're creative people. They're very good in certain ways, but they haven't had that entrepreneurial kind of been on your side of the desk experience because I started with nothing. I started with zero and I wanted to learn how to be a a successful entrepreneur and I realized I had to learn how to sell stuff and I didn't know how to sell stuff and there was no mentors that I could go to or very few mentors. My first one was Joe Kosman. He and I later did a seminar before he passed on. There were very few guys out there teaching whether they were good or bad. I didn't know of any. So why people should listen to me is simply because I've been there, done that, made every single mistake because a lot of people say, you know, they never make the same mistake twice. My God, I've made the same mistake five, six, seven times before I finally get it. So that when people are listening to me, they're listening to kind of a seasoned entrepreneur who's done a lot more and I've sold a lot more than any other so-called guru that I'm aware of. Give me some numbers. How much have you sold? Almost $6 billion worth of stuff in my own companies and in my client companies. So most of the gurus that I know, they're not into that kind of level of selling. So I've had a lot of experience. And not by any means do I suggest that I don't make mistakes, that I still don't screw up things because I do, but I do less than I used to, and I can help people get into the mindset that they need to get into before they can succeed. So I think all those things contribute to what I can bring. When you write a headline, for example, that's just not the words on the page. It's really understanding the mindset 
and the emotional place where entrepreneurs are because everybody in the world wants to have entrepreneurs come to their seminars and buy their stuff and so forth. You know, the American Expresses of the world want it and every guru wants it because they're the guys that are going to the seminars and buying the books and tapes and so forth. But the problem is, in order to sell the entrepreneur, it looks easy, but you've got to get into the mindset of the entrepreneur. And really, as I said, I'm an entrepreneur first, so it's been almost natural for me to talk and communicate with the entrepreneur because I'm one of them. I'm not just some creative guy that knows how to string a few words together and all of a sudden I'm a genius as far as, you know, writing copy and so forth, like some people are or some people purport to be. So that's a big difference. It is. Other than Joseph Kosman, as a student, did you order his seminar material or did you go to his seminar? I went to his seminar. God, I'll never forget it in Philadelphia in my mid-20s. I'd never heard of Joe Kosman. How did you respond? Was it a newspaper ad? It was a newspaper ad. It looked interesting, you know, for entrepreneurs to go there. It was a very low-priced entrepreneur and you get all this stuff. He was big at giving you a lot of government booklets about how you could sell your stuff all over the world and give licenses, get licenses. I thought, this is fantastic. So I go and hear this fellow, Joe Kosman. You know, I'm into health. He was a bodybuilder and very fit guy and just very friendly, very warm and really caring about the people in his audience. I just liked his style. I just couldn't believe it. I'd never been to a seminar like that. I didn't know of any seminars that were anything like that. And it just was so impressive to me. And he had written a book called How I Made a Million Dollars in Mail Order, which is still a very good book, a lot of good concepts in the book. And I was just so impressed with him. And some years later, as I mentioned, he and I were the featured speakers on the ship where you take a cruise to South America, and the people would listen to the seminar in the morning. It was like a week long, and during the afternoon, me and Joe were teaching these direct marketing concepts. So it was just a great thing. I learned a lot from him. I saw it and still think he was a wonderful guy. Were there any other seminar mentors before them or around the same time? There weren't before him, but a few years later, I'm bad at going back in time, but it was a few years later, I believe, when it was in my late 20s. I saw an ad for a seminar in Philadelphia where Napoleon Hill was the featured speaker, and there were three or four other guys I'd never heard of before. Bill Gove, who came to one of my seminars a few years ago, he passed away at about age 96 or so. He was there, a guy by the name of J. Douglas Edwards. J. Douglas Edwards was one of the first guys whose record I bought about closing sales. It was terrific. And I go to this stadium in Philadelphia that held 21,000 people, and there were 17 of us in the audience. I couldn't believe it. We're in this stadium, 17 people. Holds 21,000, and you know, and it was one of these things where everything went wrong for these people. Their mailing didn't go out. I mean, a lot of things went wrong, obviously. But Napoleon Hill came out. He was like 85 years old at the time. He came out and he poured his heart out to 17 of us. He taught me a lot about seminars because meantime, I've done hundreds of seminars and I've seen some top speakers who are upset when they don't have the audience that they think they deserve take it out on the audience, which I think is such a horrible thing. And, you know, I was bound to determine when I saw that I would never cancel a seminar and I didn't care how many people were in the audience. I just give everything. I can to every audience. And so I learned that from Napoleon Hill. I read his book, Think and Grow Rich, which I think is one of the classic business books. 
And those are some of the early people that I was exposed to. Can you tell me a story, a lesson learned? Let's start off with a big blunder. If you think back in your direct mail career or space advertising career, what pops out in your head of a really big, costly mistake? Well, the biggest one that I think of all the time, and I tell people the big lesson is you can have too much money because when I first began, I didn't have the money, so I couldn't make big, costly mistakes. I couldn't afford them. But after I became really successful, had a huge mailing list, and I was earning almost a million dollars a year just on list rental revenue in my company because I had about 750,000 buyers in the later years, this is the biggest blunder. I bought this company called Auto Racing USA because I was so convinced that I was able to make anything successful that was a good product that I marketed directly to the consumer. So I bought this company, but the problem was I didn't know and don't know now anything about auto racing. What was the product? It was called Auto Racing USA. It was a directory, kind of a very glossy publication that showed what auto racing was all about, the world of auto racing, and I was fascinated by it because I discovered that some people say it's the biggest attendance of any other sport. I mean, it's huge in America. But I personally, to be honest, I hate auto racing. I hate the sound, the smell. I don't like the fact that somebody can, you know, have an accident and get seriously injured or even killed in an auto racing thing. But I bought it not because I love the sport, but I bought it because I thought it could be a profitable addition to what we were doing. I thought it was the best publication that I had seen on auto racing. So anyway, I bought it. We hired the best copywriter that was recommended to us. We hired people that did printing for auto racing promotions, and we did everything wrong. Everything bad happened to us. The insert of the material in the sales letter was done wrong, and, you know, this was the type of insertion that if it was not inserted in the proper sequence, it made a big difference in the result. make a long story short, I had invested $350,000 to buy and to promote this thing. I think we went out to over 100,000 people on the test, and we got something like 15 orders. Complete disaster. So I always had in my companies in Delaware the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Shame, and this was number one in the Hall of Shame because the Hall of Fame were all the winners. The Hall of Shame were all the bombs, you know. I mean, so many campaigns that didn't succeed. And this, of course, was the number one because I'd never spent that kind of money and invested that kind of money and had such a disaster. So the big lesson was for me, never promote anything you don't know anything about. You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Well, did you think you were, like, invincible at that time, I mean, to mail out to 100000 on a test? I so. thought I was invincible because we'd hired one of my readers in the company. You know, I started the largest incorporating company in the world, Company Corporation, mm -hmm. when I came out with my first book because the registered agents would only deal with other lawyers, and I thought, that's ridiculous. I wanted to deal with entrepreneurs, and I started the Company Corporation. And so one of my readers sends me this thing. He's a consultant, and he helps people find their real driving force. I mean, he would argue in his book that the driving force that every company should have it was not understood by most of the owners and the entrepreneurs, the top executives of the company. So I thought, you know, geez, he sounds like a really bright guy. We'll hire him, and it would be fun to have, like, a weekend seminar in a private location in Virginia. We found that our driving force of our company, big surprise, is the direct marketing ability of the company and he was basically argued that we could as a direct marketer pretty much succeed at anything that 
we tried, assuming there was a market, assuming that the marketing was put together intelligently and that the copy was strong. So based on that premise is when I went at it, it just didn't go off. You know, I thought, well, I was convinced we definitely did have the direct marketing skills, and not only my own personal skills, but my team of people that I work with. And based on that is when I decided to go ahead with the purchase of this company. Plus, at that point, I had never purchased a product like that before. It was like a new experience. I thought, gee, this is fun. You just take some money and you just go out and buy it. You know, it was like a new thing for me. But it was a very costly education, and I never did get involved again with anything I didn't know anything about and wasn't passionate about. Now I talk a lot at my seminars about unless you're passionate about it, first of all, you're not going to succeed in it, and you're not going to want to stay in it, and life is too short anyway. So the big lesson is don't get involved in anything unless those things are in place. For more information on Ted Nicholas and his mentor program, go to Ted nicholasmentoring.com go to www.tednicholasmentoring.com thanks for listening can you talk about the one success you're most proud of whether it's in your direct mail promotions or your how to form a corporation for under $50 without an attorney I think that that first big success I'm most proud of because it really revolutionized I really started a new industry, which is tough to do because usually you fail when you start a new industry. So I was pleased to start the do-it-yourself incorporation industry in the U.S. because everybody, from my lawyers to my advisors to my friends to other entrepreneurs, told me I could never do that, that I couldn't break into the kind of a legal monopoly that went on at that time. Yeah, how old were you at that time when you started that? Around 35. 35, okay. But I was convinced that it could be done because it just seemed so logical to me. I knew in my heart, being an entrepreneur, this is another like psychological thing that I just knew that other people that I talked with didn't know, including all the publishers that turned down my first book. Nine of them turned it down. What they didn't know is that entrepreneurs were just like me. They had no money, no credit ability to borrow money because nobody wants to talk to a young entrepreneur. No bank does. So you have to really use creative financing techniques. And the last thing you need is an unnecessary legal fee. You know, I had formed at that time, by that time, something like 16 corporations. My lawyer was sending me bills from between $1,500 and $2,000, and I thought if I could write a book with the forms already in it, and all you got to do is tear the forms out, man, oh, man, what a fantastic service that would be for entrepreneurs. So I was absolutely convinced that I knew it from my own experience, even though these other guys turned everything down so it couldn't be done. And when I formed the company corporation, actually the first name was the corporation company, and I got this massive lawsuit from the largest incorporating company in the world at that time. What were they called? They were called the Corporation Service Company, CSC. They sued me on the basis that the public would be confused by my name being so close to their name. So I said, look, I don't want to go into a lawsuit over this. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just reverse the words. I'll change it to the company corporation instead of the corporation company. My clients didn't care any name that I wanted to use. I mean, my book readers didn't care. And so I just changed the name and went forward. And the thing I was so excited about is when I started selling the book from that $90 ad, it was great, but what was even greater is that between 10 and 12% of the buyers of the book 
incorporated through my company. By the time I finished, by 91, about $100 a year after the third year, they were spending between the registered agency and other services that they were buying from us, like filing their Delaware tax forms. And I had 125,000 clients paying me $100 forever, and I had a chance to sell, and I decided that I would sell. And now the company has 350,000 clients. I was their marketing consultant for years. The company was then recently sold again about four years ago, and I don't longer work with them. But to me, it was just a great thing to be able to do a book that everyone said would never work. The lawyers wouldn't let me do it. They'd file a massive suit. They tried to stop me from doing the book, or at least they had a mock trial over the whole idea. And then to start this new industry, I'm the most proud of doing that because I just went against all the odds and all the people that are supposed to know about things like that and just did my own thing. Ted, when you decided to write that book, you were just thinking of selling the book. Did you have in your mind that you were going to have additional products and services to sell on top of that book, or was that a revelation as the book got going? As I started getting into the book... And I started listing the registered agents that were available for the readers to use. I then contacted those people, and I got their sales material, and I could see that they were saying in their promotional material that they only dealt with lawyers. So I thought, this is really something. There's a big gap. They're dealing only with lawyers, so they're like controlling the fees amongst each other. In other words, they're all like what I call smoking their own dope. They're all smoking their own dope, these guys. I'm the new kid on the block, and I can really go in and cut the price and deal directly with the entrepreneurs and lawyers and accountants who all referred business to me. So I thought I had a real chance to do something enormous. And as soon as I started marketing the book, my telephone was ringing off the hook. My competitors were calling all upset that I was causing so much commotion in the state of Delaware because the book focuses on incorporating in Delaware, which has a lot of advantages over other states. That's where two-thirds of the American New York Stock Exchange companies are headquartered. So I could see that I was right, basically, and it feels good to be right when everybody else is telling you you're wrong, you know? <laughs> All right, so what's the lesson like within the people who want to self-publish their own book when they try and decide of a book to publish? There's money in the book, but really the book should just be maybe the, the ticket to... be a leader, should be a list builder. The lesson is create a book that has fabulous benefits that helps you build your database of people and then sell people other things, services and products and other books and seminars and other information products. But the big lesson that a lot of people come out with is schlocky, poorly packaged, miserable book. And when you do that, you're just killing potential future sales instead of building potential future sales. So that's one great lesson. And, of course, the other lesson is, as you well know, Michael, I mean, if you break even or make money on the front end, there's a tremendous profit on the back end. But you had asked me about big mistakes. Well, the other huge mistake that I made, see, when I first started, I didn't know anything about direct marketing, sort of like the lingo and, you know, this back end. I never heard the word. I didn't know what the back end was. So to me, when I started, I had the book and I had the service company, which were both doing very well. So when I wanted to add even more sales, I simply came out with another book and I wrote more ads. And I wanted more sales and I came out with another book and I wrote more ads. And what I didn't grasp 
for quite a while was that I could sell or use my techniques to sell higher priced products like tapes and videos and things like that that were information type products because I saw myself at that time kind of mentally without putting it into words. I saw myself as just a seller of products by direct mail that were kind of in the book category, you know, $30, $40 products. And so it took me a while to figure out because I then could see people renting my list. A lot of them were selling low-price subscriptions of books like Reader's Digest, Wall Street Journal were using my list very successfully. They were selling products that were quite low in price too. But then I saw a few start selling higher price things. So naturally it occurred to me, if they can sell to my list higher price products, I can sell. You know, So then I started grasping the concept that my list is even more valuable than the list rental revenue that I'm getting, I mean, because I can use it to do a lot of other things. I lost a few years, I think, because I just kept on writing because it was relatively easy for me to do what other people seem to be almost impossible for them to do, is to create a lot of new customers. To create new customers, I would just come out with another product, write more ads. More new customers, create a product come out with more ads, whereas I could see some of the people that began using the list, they only sold a little bit on the front end, and then they would begin to sell and nurture the back end kind of stuff. And so then I started combining the front end and the back end, and it really helped me build the company up to a much higher level. Let me ask you this. Okay, you were renting your list. So when your list was on the list rental market, someone who wanted to rent the list, like the Wall Street Journal or someone who's in the seminar business, they would have to send you their sales promotion for you to give them their okay to go ahead and rent the list. You're right. So you would see those coming across your desk to sign off and decide, do I want to rent my list to this marketer? By this time, I had a president and a marketing manager. Seeing stuff like that, I really delegated. I mean, I didn't look at it very closely. I could see there were good names, you know, Wall Street Journal, Reader's Digest, things like that. And if the marketing manager said, you know, cop their piece is not any conflict with what we're doing, we just approved it. Would you keep up with the continuances of the Wall Street Journal was renting over and over again? You know, they were really... Well, again, I would get reports like that, that they were renting over and over because the list was so hot. You know, they were renting over and over again. So I would see those reports, sure. So it slowly dawned on you that, hey, my list, you know, I'm getting less rental income from it, but I should be selling higher margin and different products. See, my focus is a little bit different in that. My list was so hot, so I was focusing on how can I market my list more effectively because the list is so hot. So the way I was focusing then is I'm going to write promotions and I'm going to have the hottest list marketing thing because I had my own list marketing department with just a couple of people in it. But I was in the back room basically writing copy for the individual retail products but also writing copy, I remember one of the headlines, for example, for the list rental area was, test 5,000 of our lists free and we'll deliver a Rolls Royce to your desk overnight or something like that. It was sort of that direction. And what it was was a beautiful Rolls Royce. It was like a replica of a Rolls Royce, like 120th the size that sat on your desk. I was focused more on that kind of stuff. Your list was a product of yours you were selling. Our list was a product. We obviously had expended our costs by that point, 
when the list was generated, there was no more money that we had to spend because the list was already there. It was a product. So if we marketed the list, 90% or something like that of the revenue, 90, 95% was profit. And we're renting $700,000, $800,000, you know, 750000 or so is profit. So I thought, what a fantastic business this is. You know, I don't have to create products, print products, warehouse things. You know, the list is already there. It was like done. Finished. And so I love that side of the business. Focused more on that, perhaps even than I should, but it just seemed logical to me to go in that direction. Sure. Well, since we're talking about mailing lists, can you give the listeners a few tips about renting lists, things to keep in mind, and how to protect yourself from not getting ripped off, some secret strategies for list rental? Yeah, first thing is there's never a list as good as your own list, the one you generate with people, no matter what list you ever rent, as good as it sounds. It's not going to be as good as the people that know you and trust you and love you. First lesson. Second lesson is when you hire a list on the outside, you got to find the list as close to your list, your house list, as possible. That means that you want people that have spent approximately the same amount of money to buy a product that's as close to yours as possible. So you want that closeness. Then you want recency. You want people on that list to be, everybody refers to it as a hotline, three-month or six-month hotline, that their purchase is recent because those people have purchased something similar to your product. They're hot, contrary to what people think. They are hot for more stuff in that same category. So if you offer a book or a newsletter or a special report on the same topic or similar topic as some competitor has come out with, your chance of selling is much greater than it is if you go to just some list where people have spent money in the mail or spent money by direct response. So I'm looking all the time for similarity, recency, and when I have those things and then Of course, it's absolutely necessary to begin developing relationships because in all parts of my business activities, what I'm looking to do is not do a one-shot thing, one mailing thing. I'm looking to build a relationship, and that can only be built over time, and you have to learn for you to trust the people, for people to trust you because you're exchanging lists usually. In other words, we would never rent our list unless we had the right to rent the other person's list and vice versa. So you're looking for trustworthy marketers, marketers who are offering a similar product at roughly a similar price recently. So those are the main things you got to look for. How about list brokers? Were you dealing mainly with the list owners or were you ever using list brokers? No, we're dealing with the list brokers and we honor the list brokers because the list brokers play a terrific middleman role in that they're representing and giving you a lot of information and running down lists and getting people that own lists to rent their lists because there's always that conflict when people have a list, especially if it's kind of a new list, they're not sure whether they should be renting it or not. So the list broker can often be the catalyst to get that person to rent their list. So you're only paying 10 or 20% of commission. And, of course, unless the list sale is made, the list broker is not even paid. So I think they play a very vital role. And for many years, some of our closest friends are the list brokers, and we protected them. Even if there was a question whether they should get commission or not, we paid the commission because they're just great to have on your side, I think. For more information on Ted Nicholas and his mentor program, go to tednicholasmentoring.com. Go to www.tednicholas.com. 
mentoring.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, so let's say you want to do an initial test with, for instance, a new book, and you want to drop some direct mail, and you're going to test something as close to your offer, price point. You want to match your market to what you have, and you're going to test the hotline names first, preferably with repeat buyers. And let's say, how many are you going to test on that initial run, and then how would you gauge your future test before you rolled out, and if you rolled out, how big do you roll out? What we're going to do is look for three to 5,000 of each of the lists we're going to test in addition to our own house list. How many different lists will you test? Well, we would probably test three to five lists in addition to the house list, depending on how confident we are about the new product and the profit margin and just the gut feeling about it. Usually we did around five tests in addition to our own list. And then if we had good results on two or three of the five lists, then we would roll out from three to 5,000, we'd probably go to 15 or 20,000. We would try to get more hotlines in the same category. If their hotline list number was quite small, then we would test more carefully a segment, maybe another 5,000 of the non-hotline names to see if the difference between the hotline response and the older names was as good. If that was as good, then we would feel more confident to go to 25, to 50, to 100,000 because ultimately I like to do mailings of 500,000, 700,000. That's expensive. You're talking about a half a million dollars or so. So by that point, I've got to be very convinced that the profitability is there and that I'm not going to lose a fortune on the mailings. For more exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's hard to find seminars.com you had a big company i mean at that time who was crunching all those numbers what kind of staff did it take to really analyze that between my two companies the publishing company and the incorporating company about 100 to 125 people or so including the inbound telemarketing so the crunching of the number i'm like a big believer and i use a lot of direct marketing techniques to recruit people I like hiring people that are the very best in their field, the smartest in their field. So I remember we had Laura Lee, our number cruncher. She was the top statistician in her university. I mean, she was like a brilliant person with numbers, much stronger than I am. I'm pretty good with numbers, but if I have a brilliant student like that, I mean, they're going to find things and be able to interpret what the numbers mean even better than I can. And so I had a top statistician. I also had Don Green, the best controller probably in the direct marketing field. What's a controller do? He would just do monthly profit and losses, but even more importantly, he would help analyze and interpret what the campaigns were producing in profit and loss. We would do a profit and loss on every single campaign, every single ad, every single mailing. So with the help of a controller and the statistician in my company, we really knew what we were doing as far as making decisions about going forward with different products because the kinds of activity, there's so many mailings going out and so many full-page ads being run all over the U.S. and everything. You know, there's just so much money going in and out that it's very important to keep control of it. And I could see most of the people that I knew 
seemed to be pretty sloppy to me, I mean, as far as how they were accounting for what's happening in their company. So I'm very big on having strong people, good people, and watching those numbers very carefully because that's what it's all about. See, this is what I was saying earlier. At that time, if you weren't really careful, you could be out of business and just a few mistakes, whereas now a person could be pretty sloppy, and a lot of people are on the Internet. If they're reasonably good at the marketing side, they can kind of get away with murder. You can't do that very well if you're doing everything offline. Now, of course, the top marketers are doing a combination of offline and online, and they have to be statistically very strong. The only exception is my old friend Agora, Bill Bonner. He's got kind of a company wherein he's got some strong people, some weak people. He's got like an amalgamation of people that are all doing their own thing. I've never seen anybody succeed like that. I could never run a company like that. I'd go crazy with non-centralized management the way he has. Let me ask you this, Ted. From listening to your seminars, when you were running, your space advertising. You talked a lot about buying remnant space and that really gave you a competitive edge being in the right position in the magazine or the publication and buying remnant space. With today's cost in media and advertising and increased cost of postage, how much more difficult is it to make this stuff work in space? Could you make any of your older ads work today in space? Oh, sure. Some of the older ads are still working in space that I've done for clients. See, I closed my U.S. company, my original U.S. company that did the seminars and everything when I moved to Switzerland. But a lot of my older ads, like the ad on public speaking that I did for Georgetown Publishing, that company's been sold. But those older ads that I did years ago are still running very successfully. And a lot of the older ads that I did for the company corporation, the big incorporating company, are still running by the new owners. They're still running. The difference is, of course, I think there's two things happening. The retail prices are higher on virtually all products being sold these days. And you can still make the great deals because the magazines, a lot of them are having more trouble than they had before. I've been offered a lot of magazines for sale. and I say a prayer every day even now for the fact that somebody wants to be in the magazine business. To me, that's a miserable business. You have to put a lot of money out, it's capital intensive, and you're depending on advertisers, and that's a tough way to go. But you can still negotiate terrific deals, maybe better deals now than ever. For more information from Ted Nicholas, go to www.tednicholasmentoring.com. That's www.tednicholasmentoring.com. Can you tell my listeners, if they want to negotiate some space ad to test a book or an information product, how would they specifically, step-by-step, contact the publisher and negotiate a good rate? Well, I have a whole technique that I teach at my seminars. Basically, when you're thinking of going into a magazine or a newspaper, for that matter, that may be a market for your product or service, you call the newspaper up, call the magazine up, and you ask for a media kit. And in the media kit, you get a sample of the publication and demographic information. They all have it, and they're used to dealing primarily with advertising agencies who ask that question. So you get the sample of the publication, and you have the demographic information. If it looks like it's the kind of publication that you want to run your ad in, you start asking some questions that elicit the kind of answers to determine whether or not you can get a good deal. You have the rate card in front of you of what the publication is asking, but I look at all rate cards as simply a wish list. If you send an order into a magazine or newspaper based on the rate card, they'll gladly accept your order, but you're going to pay 
substantially more than you can in almost all cases if you negotiate. See, they're used to dealing with advertising agencies who make all their money on how much the advertising costs because they usually get between 15 and 18 percent on how much is spent. But the entrepreneur like me and like my clients, they make more money if they buy more advertising cheaper. So I'm always looking to buy the advertising at the lowest possible rate. So I begin asking a lot of questions, and I develop a whole series of questions. Number one is, what is your mail-order discount, you ask the magazine? Well, so the magazine is either going to say one of two things, well, 20%, but if you don't ask them, they don't tell you. But you ask them, there's a 20% discount. Well, that's 20% on a $10,000 ad. That's $2,000. I just did several seminars in Australia. Those guys are all paying the full retail rate and in some cases still breaking even on their ads. I mean, they're losing a fortune. But when I taught them this segment, man, are they excited because they can go out and negotiate the rate. So that's the first question. The second question is, what is your publisher's discount? Now, usually that's another 20% if they have a publisher's discount. The other thing that they can answer on both those first two questions, we don't have a mail order rate, we don't have a publisher's rate, and you say there's no pressure. You say as the potential advertiser, okay, thank you very much. Do you mind if I ask you a few more questions? They're going to say, of course, we don't mind. So then you ask another question, how often? You don't say, do you offer remnant space? You ask, how often do you offer remnant space? Because that assumes consent on your part, and either they say, I'll have to get back to you on that because we don't know, because like musical chairs and magazines and newspapers, they change personnel. A lot of them don't really know, and the advertising agencies aren't asking them. So you find out how often. If you're talking to a knowledgeable person, they'll say, well, we from time to time have remnants available, and we give that to our top advertisers is a typical answer. Then you ask, well, how often do you have distress space available? which is space that somebody pulled out of a section of the country because for whatever reason the liquor company doesn't want to market. They only want to market in New England, for example, but you have the rest of the circulation in the United States available at a very big discount. So they'll tell you, well, we do offer that to our best advertisers. So it's those specific questions that will then enable you to determine what price. Now, I would get up to 80% discount off the rate card rate on my advertising. So a lot of my competitors, when they'd see my ads running all the time in magazines, they would assume it's because the copy's great, the products are great, but the reality is is one-third segment, which is the cost of the advertising is so great that the competitors just didn't have any kind of a system to buy they either didn't run at all or they paid the full rate or close to the full rate. That's a hugely important thing. The other thing is when you're talking with a magazine, it's very important to be on the right-hand page because right-hand pages are about three or four times better for the advertising than a left-hand page. And you have to be at least in the top third, in the front third of the magazine, because people that buy a magazine on the newsstand or subscribe, generally they're busy. They only get to read the first part of the magazine before they're busy with something else. If you're in the back of the magazine, you're going to die in most cases. So I would work all the time on getting pages 7, 9, 11, or 13, which are in the top front of the magazine and really premium pages without paying any more by simply saying, to the magazine, you are aware, Mr. Magazine, that 
I, as a mail-order publisher, cannot succeed unless I'm close to the front of the magazine. I'd like to be in on page 7, 9, 11, or 13. Is that possible? Once I have all the discounts worked out, is that possible? Well, it is possible, of course, because they do a layout of the magazine, and, you know, they can put you wherever they want to put you. So, again, 99% of the time I'd be in the front of the magazine. Some magazines, like Forbes, the late Malcolm Forbes, the present owner's father, loved my ad so much he would put me on page one, which is even before the table of contents. And, man, did I have some killer results in that publications. Wow. What ad was that? Numerous ones because that's the other thing people don't realize. My book on incorporation has sold 2 million copies, but what people don't realize is the book has 32,000 words, but I wrote well over 100,000 words of copy to sell the book. Over 100 ads that I wrote, about 30 of them were big successes. The others either did not make break even so that I wrote so much copy that people see some of the ads running over and over again, but I wrote a lot more ads than actually people remember because a lot of them only appeared once or twice in magazines, but the ones that did well, I would repeat and repeat and repeat. I've seen those in your compilation where you rated everything with one star, two star, three star. Oh, so you've really looked at that. Yeah, that's a classic product out there. Yeah, that one star system, I and mean, people like the late Gary Halbert, he'd never seen anybody do ads and rate their ads. Gary and others have asked me, they wanted to see all my flops. And I said, God, as thick as that book is, if I had all my flops, I'd have a book, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000 pages. I mean, you know, it's many more flops than huge home runs. How about the size of the space ad? Generally, is bigger better if you have a winning ad? Give me just a couple tips on the space. Should you go full page or? I started out with fractional pages. As you know, I started out with a little $90 ad in the Wall Street Journal. Of course, that's the best read classified ads in the world. But I found out that over time, all things being equal with a hot book or a hot product, the larger the space, the more return per dollar invested than the smaller ads. You just command more attention. But then when you go to a full page size, a 7 by 10 is where I've run 95% of my ads. The 7 by 10 for that reason and also for the reason that you can negotiate better deals as a full page advertiser than as a fractional page advertiser. Oh, I see. Did you ever try double page spreads? Tried double page spreads, yeah. Tried back covers, inside front covers, inside back covers. I've tried every combination. Would double pay off better than a full page? The best format is single page, black and white, in the first few pages of the magazine, all things being equal, that's the best that I've found for an information product. Okay, so let's say you negotiate your fee. Can you negotiate terms, or generally do you have to pay for that up front, that discount? When I started and didn't have much credit established, I had to pay for a lot of them up front, but then as I got to be a regular advertiser in so many publications, I got extended credit, and I always loved running the ad and getting enough money in to pay for the ad before the bill was do. So this is what new people have to do. You have to come up with the money. If I'm going to start a campaign now, I don't go into the big, expensive space media immediately. I would go to less costly media that's hitting that market before I rolled out to more expensive media so that I don't have too much on the front. You know, I like to test small and roll out big so that I don't have too much going in the front end. So how's your business looking today? What are you keeping busy with over the last several years? What are you into? Well, I'm picking and choosing 
interesting. Well, first of all, I own 20% of probably the fastest growing nutritional company in Europe that's headquartered in the Netherlands. In one year, the company came out with like 67 new products, and I write all the copy. I name all the products. You know, I handle all the positioning of the products, and so it's called Green Power. And they came to me in 1998 at one of my seminars. They were doing a half a million dollars a year, and by 2003, they were doing 72 million a year. And I own 20% of this company, so it's kept me real busy, and I've enjoyed it because I'm really into health personally and alternative medicine. And a lot of the stuff that I've done outside my own companies has been in the health field. Is Green Power direct mail or multi-level? No, it's all direct mail, primarily into Germany, because that's the biggest market in Europe. And there's a few wrinkles, because the German equivalent of the FTC is very strict, and the way the thing is set up is that we're able to mail pretty much freedom of claims and things because we're mailing from the Netherlands into Germany and kind of getting around and kind of pushing the envelope a little bit, but getting to the German market without too much restriction, and it's helping the company grow tremendously. So I've spent a lot of time doing that. What I've also done the last few years, I've enjoyed doing seminars tremendously. So I've done a lot of seminars around in Europe, in the UK, and Australia, and I enjoy that a lot. And ever since 93, I've just been able to pick and choose. When I sold my companies, I've just been able to do whatever I want to do. And, you know, I play a lot of tournament tennis, and I work a lot on fitness, and I do consulting work for different clients. I enjoy that. So I kind of spread myself among these various things that I enjoy doing. And also on a personal level, I promised my significant other, who I've been with for 21 years, that no more big companies. And I've kept that promise. In other words, I'm tempted every day to start another company and start hiring people and doing all this stuff because the difference between owning a company and being a consultant is that you don't have the full control of what happens with all the stuff that you're advising, whereas if you own the company, you obviously have the full control over it, but you have to pay the price of being there maybe seven days a week, and I don't want to quite do that anymore. However, this mentoring program, which I've been thinking about for a couple of years, and started only about two months ago. We now have mentoring clients all over the place in all these countries. It's just been so popular, and I'm getting asked so many questions because part of the service is to answer and critique people's copy and websites and everything, and I'm well, enjoying that a lot. Let's do this. I'm going to have the listeners go to this URL, and let's take a look. And Can we talk about some of your sales copy? All right, you can go to this page. Go to tednicholasmentoring.com, tednicholasmentoring.com, and that will take you to the sales letter for your mentoring program. Now, as we look at this, can we talk about some copy tips, at least online copy sure, tips? No problem. So who wrote the sales letter? Did you write this? I did, yeah. You wrote the sales letter? I wrote the sales letter, yeah. Are you looking at it right now? I'm looking at it right now. I have a copy of it on my desk here. First thing that sticks out to me is the red background. Do you test that color or any reason for the red? Yes, I've tested it, not on this particular one, because we went out like this, and it's so successful, we just keep it like this. But I've done a lot of headlines in red. I mean the background of the page. 
No, we didn't test that at all. But it's just so successful like this, we've just kept it. Yeah, this is your control, so why change it, right? That's right. Okay, so I see urgent announcement from the desk of Ted Nicholas. So that's not a headline. What do you call the very first thing? I call that a pre-headline. A pre-headline, which can be up to, in this case, six, seven words. Pre-headline and then dot, 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 and then the headline itself. In the headline, you have quotations around the headline. Is there a significance about that? Yes, an enormous significance because some experts have studied and concluded that the headline is much more memorable when it's in quotes because it suggests that someone very important said it. Somebody very important did say it. All right, now what about the red color of the text? Is that something that's been tested compared to well, black? Yeah, I've tested that a lot, and red works very well in different business offers. Again, we didn't test it on this particular one, but I've tested it so many other times that we just use that same pattern. All right, can you read to me the headline and talk about that headline and talk a little bit about the importance of a headline and some of the psychology behind this headline specifically? Well, a headline I have found, and so have others like John Caples and other great marketers of the past, that 73% of buying decisions are made at the point of the headline. And in my view, most people, most copywriters, most marketers don't spend nearly enough time on the headline. And I have 12 different headline styles that I teach, and they're actually 13. And I just finished writing right now the first draft of the next newsletter for the mentoring group, which gets special stuff that I don't publish anywhere else. But I take my mentoring members behind the scenes, and they're getting the most powerful headline technique, which I call the hidden benefit headline. And a lot of times I'll use the hidden benefit headline. So I really focus on headlines because it's so important. For instance, on a typical direct mail offer, I'll write, oh, 100 to 250 headlines, whereas I notice other copywriters I compare notes with, they'll write, oh, three or four headlines, and they'll choose one, and they'll go out with it. So I'm really big on headlines because very often I don't come up with the right headline until I write a lot of them and then just come up with the one that's just the killer headline. Now, in this case, I'm talking about a simple secret which led to $5.9 billion in revenue. Well, again, no marketer that I'm aware of can make any claim anywhere close to that. And can I personally mentor you for the next year and teach you how to use the same secret to make yourself very wealthy? So, of course, my readers and people on my list are looking to increase their wealth, increase their revenue, and make more money. And that headline psychologically ties into that self-interest of becoming richer, wealthier. And I go on in the sub-headline, I've shown thousands of people how to enjoy a millionaire's lifestyle, so many that they call me the millionaire maker. And it's easy when you have a multimillionaire by your side personally helping and guiding you every step of the way. So what I'm doing there is bringing out one of the biggest benefits, one of the most popular benefits is that the mentoring members can contact me up to once a month and get feedback on their marketing plans, their strategy, their copy. And I get a lot of the mentoring members constantly contact me about that, and I spend a lot of time in making suggestions and very often writing headlines, new headlines, suggesting new headlines, suggesting new copy directions, and things of that sort. 
When I was preparing for this call, I was reading through this, and I couldn't wait to get to the bottom to see how much this mentoring was. And I'm not just giving hype here to you or the listeners, but when I saw the price, you know, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I was really expecting to pay, and I thought it would be worth it, thousands of dollars for this. But when I saw the price of it, I couldn't believe it. That's a very low price. I lean toward the lower the price, the higher the value, and having just a tremendous value that people can't turn down. I mean, everybody would do better. Everybody does better with a good mentor. And to have a mentor at such a low price, with my background and experience, I think it's great. Now, I do have in the back of my mind a lot of the top marketers of the world, my clients and readers and friends, and they want to write checks to me for thousands of dollars so that they can have access to me. And a lot of them are already members of this mentoring program because they're waiting. They want me to have segments of the mentoring program that are at a higher fee where they have more access to me. And I am considering having groups of clients paying higher fees with greater access so that it is in the back of my mind because people do expect access to me to be at a higher price than they're getting here. But I'm going to keep this mentoring program for a lot of my clients clients because a lot of them are new in business. I'm going to keep the fees very simple and very low. For more information on Ted Nicholas and his mentor program, go to tednicholasmentoring.com. Go to www.tednicholasmentoring.com. Thanks for listening. Very good. Well, can I ask you this? The word secret, we see that a lot in headlines. Is the word secret a secret weapon when writing headlines? Yeah, it's huge. Very big. It's one of my favorites. I like secret. So the secret of the most powerful headline writing system in the world, you know, it is a very, very powerful word. It is one of my 27 headline words that are my favorite that I've tested a lot. Now, let me ask you this. You have a short audio, which I listen to, and it basically outlines very briefly, you know, your credibility and what's included in the mentoring program, and you have your photo there. Have you been able to test audio on online promotions and any feedback on that? We haven't really done a lot of testing on the audio. We just added audio a little while ago, and it seems to be very well received, but we really haven't tested audio versus no audio, or we haven't tested this form of audio versus another form of audio, but it is something. But what I love about the Internet is we can test everything that we're doing so quickly, so inexpensively compared to everything we're doing offline, but this is working so well as it is. Again, I don't see any great urgency to be testing things like that right now. Your text, it looks like it's New Times Roman. What is the best text for online copy? I use Times Roman an awful lot and Arial. I like Times Roman and Arial for online copy. I used to always recommend an offline, for whatever reason, Times Roman and Courier, the old Courier typeface have tested out to be the best typefaces. But online, for whatever reason, Times Roman and Arial seem to be the best faces to use. Now, what about when you're writing the copy, the indenting, you're indenting each little subparagraph. Has that been tested where proven that you can get better results with indentions? Years ago, I tested that, and I basically tested that offline, and we just used the same principle online. Have you ever written copy for some of the huge mailers like Agora or Phillips Publishing or any of these big guys in your yes. days? Yes, I have. I've written copy for a lot of those guys, and I've done various things for Agora and Phillips in the past. 
right now I'm just concentrating on my own things right now, so I'm not accepting new clients. You see, I had spent so much time with clients, so much time with Green Power, that I was kind of like the shoemaker with holes in his shoes. I wasn't spending enough time with my own company. That's, again, another downside of being a copywriter and consultant for other companies because I would always favor my clients' priorities rather than in my own company. So I'm now getting back to spending time in my own company. If I were to print this letter out, it's 26 pages, and there's a lot of copywriting students who come onto my site, and they want to know, and I'm sure you get it all the time, how long should a letter be? I get that question all the time. It should be long enough to tell the whole story, and I never know. People ask me all the time, do you sit down and write a 26-page letter? And the answer is absolutely not. I don't know how long the copy is going to be. What I do is I sit down and I think of every possible benefit that I can, and whatever that comes to, that's the length of the letter. This is after I've trimmed what I consider to be any unnecessary copy. So I just don't know what it's going to be, and if they're interested in your product or service, they will read the copy, and I learned a long time ago. For example, I used to run the New York Times book review every week. My book on incorporating was like a $10,000 ad, and they asked me to change three words in an ad. It was like 1,100 words, and they had three words. The legal department asked me to change, and I said, I'm a nice guy. I'll change the three words, and I went from a huge winner, about eight times cost, down to below break even, and I then set up a policy in my company that we don't change a word of copy for anybody. We don't care who asks. We just don't change a word of copy. If people don't like something in the copy, pull the ad and don't charge us. I mean, we're not going to run unless we run it exactly right. And the words were only in Delaware. We added the words only in Delaware. But see, that's confusing because in the book it explains how the incorporating works for anyone in the United States. They incorporate in Delaware. You don't have to live in Delaware. But when you have it in an ad, it confuses the public and it confuses the buyers. And when you confuse people, they don't act. So the answer to your question is people will read however number of pages. Now, if the copy is written the way we were all taught in English, you remember we were taught, I received yours of September 17th and so on. Two sentences is too long because that's so boring. But if it's written in a way that's exciting, that's interesting, that tells a story that goes right through from, you know, Joe Sugarman, my friend, calls it going through the shoot and going right to the end of the copy, I don't particularly like that phrase, but he looks at it that way. That if it's written in an exciting way, it's never too long. Because on page 25 of page 26, there may be some benefit that that's the particular reason that someone wants to be mentored by Ted Nicholas. You know, they'll find that benefit that applies to them, and everybody's different. So that's how I look at it. I see some testimonials on the page. What would you say to someone who says that testimonials are wearing out? People are so used to seeing testimonials, they don't really give them that much credit. Well, I disagree with that because when we have copy with testimonials, without testimonials, the with testimonial copy always works better. But with one caveat, testimonials a lot of times do not have the full name of the person giving the testimonial. Testimonial must have the full name must have the city and town of the person giving the testimonial. And the testimonial must be heartfelt and must be really on target and support what's in the copy. If the testimonial is like kind of a namby-pamby testimonial, you know, like, your software is just wonderful, thanks a lot, Joe S., no city and town, it looks like hype, there's nothing specific, doesn't support the copy, 
it's just meaningless and worthless. That kind of a testimony is better not to have. But if you're selling a software product and software product helps somebody, I just helped one of the mentoring clients, has a spyware detector kind of a product. Basically, I rewrote his headline along the lines of how my spyware detector will help you from getting ripped off. And that's in the form of a testimonial because a lot of times what I advise my clients to do is take from the testimonial the most heartfelt words that are right on target as far as the unique benefit of the product and use that as the headline. In other words, let the customer write the headline. So that testimonials not only are effective in a column, usually on the right-hand side of a page on the Internet, but also very effective as headlines so that when other people are saying something about your product or service, it's more effective than if you're saying it about your product or service very often. So especially if you're not an experienced copywriter, if you're basically repeating the heartfelt words of your satisfied customers, that's even more effective than anything that many copywriters can ever write. There's many testimonials that I use. For example, in the Green Power Company that I mentioned, I read testimonials from customers very carefully, and I found, well, a company that a lot of people are in the United States that will be listening to this conversation, I'm sure, right? Yes. Well, one of the big people I've consulted with is Nightingale Conant, the biggest personal development marketer sure. online and offline. I interviewed Vic Conant a couple oh, of years Vic, ago. Yeah, he's a very good guy. And what I discovered when I went in and I did what I call a needs analysis, I look at what the company's doing, I asked them, do you have any testimonials for your products? And they said, God, we've got several drawers full of testimonials. I said, but I look at all your copy. And at that time, I looked at all the brochures and I couldn't find any testimonials. Why aren't you using them? They looked at each other. They didn't know why they were using so I looked at their testimonials and I found golden nuggets and I isolated them and just edited the testimonials so that using the words of the person but taking the one or two sentences that were the golden nuggets out of their testimonial letters and boy, it really helped their responses from their brochures and the way that they were doing the mailings at that time. So, you know, I noticed that a lot of my clients, when I first go in, they're not utilizing the power of testimonials, which is to me one of the greatest unused things because for some reason they don't see them as that powerful or you know a lot of the testimonials are namby pammy you know thanks a lot Vic for publishing this book we appreciate it you know Joe Dokes I mean that's kind of a testimonial that doesn't mean much but when you say after I took your tape program my income went up last year by a hundred and fifty three thousand dollars Ted Nicholas from Montrose Switzerland I mean what can be more powerful than that if it's a program about increasing your income? The testimonial just verifies that that could be done. You know, these are some of the things I found out about testimonials. It's how you use them that is critical. Another way to empower the testimonials is to ask for the photograph of the person giving the testimonial, and 80, 90% of the time they gladly send you the photograph. Well, in this letter, we don't have photographs of the testimonial people, as I recall. Again, it's working so well like this, we didn't get any photographs. But in a lot of stuff that I do, we have photographs of the people or a lot of the people giving the testimonials, which strengthens the testimonial, makes it more believable, doesn't sound like hype. See, because when people read testimonials, the way most of them are presented without a full name, they think somebody else wrote them other than a customer. They don't see it credible. You know? They don't believe the testimonial, in other words. So, Ted, if someone printed out this sales letter, on page 15, there's a lot of bullets here in this sales letter. 
Can you right. talk about what is a bullet, why are they important to use in the sales letter, and how should one think about creating bullets to capture the largest percentage of their readers to compel them? Well, I always look at bullets as answering the so what question. They're like, what are the benefits of the product or service, and do they answer the so what question? You know, like when you look at one bullet is access to me, Ted Nicholas, at least 12 times a year via email for consulting and critique. And then the so what is you really can contact me at my personal email address with any issues or questions you have, and I'll give you my undivided attention. You can get personal critiques, feedback about your website, sales, copy, product, or marketing plan. My standard fee is $5,000 an hour minimum, so that's a $60,000 value. Well, what I'm saying is you get access to me and answering the so what question, you get all this other stuff, and why that's meaningful, it answers the so what question. So I'm thinking of it in that way, and for whatever reason, those bullet points, I use bullet points in virtually every direct mail piece and almost every ad because it seems to be a format that people just read. I mean, they're very interested in reading those bullet points. They highlight those benefits. Okay. When you know you have a reader reading your ad and they could come from all different backgrounds, different markets, is it important to create bullets that those different readers can identify with by casting a larger net to capture more of your market? Is that a strategy one should use when creating bullets? Well, that's not a bad thought, but what I try to do is I think about my typical person reading my letter, who is my market, and I just create a bullet point for that niche. I don't try to widen it too much. I'd rather turn off some people if I make sure that I'm really capturing the mindset of the person who's the best prospect because I know you can't please everybody. You know, I look at a lot of copy and I can see the attempt of the copywriter is I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to offend anybody. I want to have the net as wide as possible and they lose the power of the copy. The copy has to be right on to that prospect and turn off as many people that are not going to be Good. I don't want people in my mentoring program unless they're perfect candidates for it, unless they're really qualified, unless they're really interested, unless they're going to really follow up, unless they really want to be successful. If they just want to kick tires and mess around and play around, I don't even want them in the program, you know, so that the copy is directed toward the active person who's going to follow up and work on their success and I'm going to help them because I only want to help the people that, you know, in my view, deserve to be helped. Right. Now, I noticed something that I don't see done much. Under each one of these bullets, you have a value, a dollar amount. Tell me the psychology of that. What are you trying to do here throughout the letter by putting I'm the value? I'm trying to build the value is so astounding that the little bit of money that people are paying, you know, it's $97 a month, but actually the charter members, which is still available now, is only 47 per month. I mean, it's an incredible value. Well, I'm just trying to show the huge difference between what I charge, what I have charged, what I do charge major clients, and when people can get in on the ground floor of this new program at such a reasonable, such a low price. So it's only an attempt to show the reality of the price versus the value, just showing the huge contrast. 
Right. You know, there's so much we could talk about this letter. I do want to skip down to the very bottom because when I reviewed it, that's the first thing I did to look at the PS to try and get the essence of what this is all about. And I think a lot of people do that in direct mail letters and even space ads. Second most read part of the letter. So I'm looking at PS. I'm only offering the free month trial of the Ted Nicholas mentoring program initially to a small select group. Only then will I roll it out to other lists at a much higher price to avoid disappointment. I urge you not to procrastinate. Once the charter membership is full, I will need to pull the page and your invitation along with it. This is a powerful four lines of copy. Can you talk about some of the psychological elements within just the first PS? Sure. Well, scarcity is something that motivates all of us. And I know in direct marketing, if people read this letter and they don't act now and join the mentoring program, procrastination and delay in direct marketing is death. We know that. So that we want people to be motivated and a reason why to act now is because the price will go up and will not go back down so that the idea is to get somebody to make that Everybody hesitates to make any financial decision, particularly these days where, you know, the newspapers are full of gloom and doom and so on and exaggerating. I mean, there are problems in the economy, but the way the media covers it, they're making it sound 20 times worse than it is. You know, it is a temporary situation. About every 20 years, there's a new recession, and everybody says the world's falling apart every time. So that there may be a hesitation on the part of some people reading the letter because of the economy being tight. Should I do this? So what I'm saying to the people is, act now. It's a low price. You're going to get all this benefit. You're going to get all this value. And scarcity is one psychological trigger that causes us all to react. Right. So when you say when the charter membership is full, you'll pull the page. You really will pull the page. Absolutely. You're not kidding, and it's not a marketing point. No, I don't believe in kidding around and copy. I mean, I've just lived long enough and have done so many things. I just believe in leveling with people and just telling them the truth, dramatizing the truth, but telling them the truth. Why a PPS? PPS, because I don't want to make the PS too long, and the PPS just breaks up the PSs. We're basically, again, telling the people if they don't act now, we'll just bring somebody else in in their spot. Let me read it. If you're slightly hesitant in any way, balking at the price, even with a reduced charter membership price, that may be a good thing for all concerned. That means your spot will go to someone else who can profit from this insider information. My bluntness is not meant to offend anyone. It's just the plain truth. I don't want mentoring members unless they are 100% on board and therefore will apply the inside information coming their way each and every month. I've done all I can to make it as risk-free as possible. Now it's up to you to activate your subscription. What's the risk-free offer? The risk-free offer is basically try it out for a month. doesn't cost you anything, and you'll get a free copy of Billion Dollar Marketing Secrets, an e-book version of this $297 book. You'll get that delivered to you on your computer. Try it out for a month. Try the services. Try the special membership site. And if it's not everything that I promised in the letter, you can quit and doesn't cost you anything. If you continue on a month-to-month basis, the following month you'll get a free, beautifully bound copy of Billion Dollar Marketing Secrets and all these other benefits. You'll get a DVD with a lot of information on it. You'll get, of course, the monthly services that I provide 
and you'll get access to all the things that we have constantly coming on the membership site. I mean, you just get a tremendous amount of things, and you'll get access to what I'm advising other members about their particular I have found over the years that people learn a lot more often on what someone else has been advised than what they're advised directly themselves because you can be like a lot more objective and use that advice in your own operation. So people get all this stuff and after that first month, if for any reason somebody wants to quit, they can quit at any time. They just let us know and we stop billing them. And I notice you have almost like a handwriting script all over in different parts of the sales letter, and that's one of your styles in your direct mail copy. It is. I love margin notes, and I love using handwritten things. And one of my seminar attendees actually publishes a service called Doodles, and you can get the service just like two or three hundred bucks, and you get all this stuff. You could deliver digitally. And there's a terrific handwriting that is on all these doodles, and you can use it in your letter. You can use it on your website, and I just think it's a great thing to do. And I noticed this company is using my endorsement, and I noticed the other day that Dan Kennedy's also endorsed this doodle service. So all those handwritten things on the letter and including the PSs that are handwritten using this doodle service. The very bottom of the letter says, why wait, apply now. Why are we using the word apply now rather than buy now or order now? Well, because order now and buy now are negative words. And all of my copy and all of my ads on order forms, I never use the word order and I never use the word form because order suggests that you're spending money, not necessarily. It doesn't talk about the benefit. It talks about the expenditure of money. And the use of the word form, I've noticed that even accountants that come to my seminar, they hate the word form. They hate to fill out forms. So I use, like, free examination requests. I use the word applications. I use the word application, seminar application. I use those kind of phrases rather than the word order and the word form. So that I think it's a huge mistake for direct marketers, and I want all my mentoring members to know, it's a big mistake on your offers to use the word form and to use the word order. You simply will get less orders. Very good. All right, I've clicked on the Apply Now button, and then another window pops up, and it says Ted Nicholas Mentoring Program Registration. It takes just five minutes to register for a free 30-day trial. So there's some questions here. So what should someone do when they get to this page? They should just answer those questions and send it in. And then immediately all have access into the membership? Yeah, immediately they get a welcome letter and the Billion Dollar Marketing Secrets, like within 24 hours, it's on its way. And then you get access directly into the membership site. Very good. Ted, I could sit here for hours and we could talk about all kinds of things. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. You've asked fantastic questions and I'm delighted you know so much about my life and my business and my activities. Well, I've listened to your seminars for hours and hours and read some of your books, but fortunately for the listeners here, they don't have to stop listening to you because they can get you for hours and hours in your mentoring program and this isn't just hype. I am going to sign up right after we hang up the phone because 
because having access to you personally or by email is certainly going to be well worth the small fee that you're asking. And I would encourage any of my listeners to take advantage of this right now before it fills up because I know that when you say you're going to stop it, you are going to stop it because you can only work with so many people. And I think for any of my listeners on hardtofindseminars.com to miss out on this because this is very valuable. Well, thank you for those comments, and I just want all the listeners to know I'll do all I can to help you become more successful in your activities, whether you're a beginner or whether you're already into the marketing of products online or offline, and I know that what you're going to get will just help you in those directions enormously. So I look forward to working with you guys. Thank you, too. Talk with you later. All right, bye-bye. For more information from Ted Nicholas, go to www. TedNicholasMentoring.com. That's www.TedNicholasMentoring.com. T-E-D-N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-M-E-N-T-O-R-I-N-G.com. Thank you for listening to this interview with Ted Nicholas. I hope you have found it as interesting and captivating and compelling as I have. For more information on Ted Nicholas and his mentor program, go to Ted Nicholas mentoring.com go to www.tednicholasmentoring.com thanks for listening for more interviews like this go to hardtofindseminars.com